Okay, hi, so this is uh, voice blog number two. Uh, it's been a week since uh, my first uh, audio, which was on the topic of hearing the voice of Jesus. Uh, today I think I'm just going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to talk about uh, Jesus and the grand narrative uh, in preparation for um, some uh, evangelistic ex- uh, um, classes that, that are going to be coming up. I'm going to be uh, teaching, God willing, about three or four uh, Japanese students. Uh, I, I've uh, talked them into allowing me to talk to them over lunch. Uh, six consecutive times on the subject of Jesus. Uh, and I, I hesitate to call it a Bible study uh, because I, I think when we reduce everything to Bible study, we tend to think that everything there is to be found about Jesus is in uh, between uh, the, the two covers of, of a book. Uh, be that probably the the greatest book ever written, uh, granted. Um, But I'd like to put forward the idea that Jesus and and, uh, evidence of Jesus is to be found all throughout creation. Because we know that he existed before creation and that he created the world. Uh, And that he is ultimately our destination. Our, our, our destination is found within Jesus Christ. And so today I just thought I would talk about the grand narrative of Jesus. What does Jesus mean in on a cosmic level? Uh, so I just alluded to the fact that John... Uh, and, and Paul both place Jesus before the foundations of the world, uh, before creation, before presumably anything was created, including angelic beings uh, as well. So in time before time, uh, what Frank Viola likes to call eternity past, uh, there was the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they existed in perfect community together. Uh, And in that time, they were, they still are, of course, but they were perfect. They had a perfect relationship between the three of them. The the essence of God is community. I'll, I'll talk about Frank Fiola a lot, but he talks about the, the, the eternal dance that the Father and the Son have always done and we're doing in this, in this period of time before time. And he says that the Father and Son are engaged in an eternal dance where they are constantly pouring love one to another. And he describes the Holy Spirit as being the choreographer, the the means by which this happens, the the connective tissue between father and son. And in this time, Paul talks about that we, mankind, 
uh, we were conceived of, that that we were called before the the foundations of the earth were laid, before the world was made, we were called by God to be a fourth member of this eternal dance. Uh, and so Jesus called us then. Uh, Jesus talks about in the Gospels that no, no one can come to him unless he be called. Uh, and so the idea is that uh, the idea that's, that's bound up in predestination uh, and calling uh, is that God foreknew us. He knew us before we knew ourselves, before we existed, uh, and even before the, the beginning of the world. Uh, he knew that one day we would be uh, together as the body of Jesus and that we would be invited and attend the, this eternal dance that will happen, uh, well, that has begun and will continue into eternity future. And that is uh, after this world, this present age, has had its run. Uh, and and so Jesus uh, is talked about as being the Alpha and the Omega, right? The beginning and end. Uh, and in that sense, uh, we can see how that is so. That if he was there when we were conceived back in eternity past, uh, and he is also the means by which we will be attending this dance in eternity future, then we can see that he is, of course, uh, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Uh, in Ephesians and, and also Colossians, I believe the, f the first chapter of Colossians and the third chapter of Ephesians, uh, Paul talks about the supremacy or the superiority uh, or the first place of uh, Jesus and how that he um, is the firstborn of creation and that by all things, uh, by him all things were made and all things are by him to him and for him. And in him all things hold together. So it is impossible to overstate the importance of Jesus in the world, in the cosmos. Uh, Jesus uh, is... Sorry, I just got a phone call. Uh, trying to remember where I was, but I, I, I think I was talking about um, how it's impossible to overstate the importance of God and that Jesus is the impetus behind why God is doing everything. Everything is by him, for him, and to him. Now, the, the prevalent evangelical uh, view on what is going on in the world is that God is doing all this to save us. That everything is done for us. Okay? Yes, we, we would say it's by Jesus, uh, but we would say he's doing everything for us. And it's a, it's a human-centric uh, kind of a paradigm uh, in, that, in that our sole purpose on earth is to be saved by God, and God's sole purpose is to save us. Well, this flies in the face of much of Scripture. And, and 
much of uh, much of the grand narrative of what God is doing, much of the overarching story of what God is doing in the world is in Scripture. Of course, it's all there. It's in Scripture, but it is, in a sense, hidden or veiled. Uh, and I think it has been hidden and veiled uh, until such a time that uh, the unveiling of it will have a, a huge impact on the world. And so, changing the view that the world exists for the Father and for the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit instead of for us uh, really is quite a big paradigm shift. And, and I, I, I'm convinced it's one that has to be made. Uh, the alternative doesn't make sense. For example, uh, we talked about that man was called before the beginning of the world. Now, before the beginning of the world, there was no sin, and certainly sin had not entered into the earth. I don't know if there was some kind of sinful thing going on with uh, Satan, and we know that there was a war in heaven between Michael and the angels of uh, the Lord and between Satan and his angels, we know there was some kind of a battle. And I think this was before time began. I'm not sure how this works out exactly. I don't know the timing. Frankly, it's not important. But we do know that man had not sinned. Man was not guilty of sin before the foundations of the world. Sin entered into the world through one man, Adam. Okay, look that up. Through, through one man, sin into the world, and through one man, sin is defeated. Sin enters the world through Adam, but sin is defeated through Jesus. Now, yes, we are benefactors of that beautiful truth. We, we benefit from the fact that uh, Jesus destroyed sin and death through his crucifixion and resurrection. But that's not to say that the cosmos and all of history and all of creation, all time and all matter is centered on man. Uh, because that would mean that God's sole purpose again is to save us. And we know that we did not saving, we did not need saving from sin before the world began. We did not need it. It was, you know, when God conceived of us, we were we were a perfect and whole idea in his mind, and we had not sinned. And so sin entered the world, and that necessitated Jesus for us to be saved. For us to be saved, Jesus uh, and the Father saw fit for his sacrifice to take place. So, j just, to, just to recap for my sake, mostly, that we... We exist because we have been invited to this eternal dance that is, has been going on and will forever be going on between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have been invited as a fourth member in the person of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. But that's not to say that everything has happened for us. We exist for the pleasure and glory of God. 
in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We exist for them. They have purposes that we help them fulfill. We are not the sole end of the creator of all things. Now we bring him pleasure. He pleasures in us. He loves us. Uh, he, he speaks to us um, and has gone through great lengths, gone to great lengths to save us. But that's not to say that man's salvation is the center of the universe. That would mean man is the center of the universe, and that is patently false. So, what do you do? How do you, how do you take away, how, how do you get rid of the idea that you are at the center? That mankind is at the center, that salvation is the eternal purpose of God. That man's salvation is God's eternal purpose. How do you get rid of that? Well, one way is to discover the eternal purposes of God. And again, back to Frank Viola, but there are other people, uh, T. Austin Sparks, um, A.W. Tozer, um, great writers of the past, and, and I, would, I would say even uh, N.T. Wright, I would put him in there. Uh, I'm not gonna have any specific information, but uh, because he hasn't written on this subject per se, uh, but he would agree that man uh, is not the sole purpose of God. I think he would agree that that God is doing something greater uh, for himself and unto himself. Um, and so, what are those things? What is the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, what are they doing? What is all this for? Well, we find two tracks, uh, sorry, four tracks. There are four, four things uh, in the Bible, and I would, I would venture that there are more because these four things are aspects of or metaphors for, I believe, a single purpose that we cannot fully understand. Okay, and there's no word for it. And therefore, by by finding these four things in Scripture, and by the way, these four things are from the beginning all the way to the end of Scripture, we, we have signposts that point to the inconceivable purpose of God. Here are the four things. Number one, uh in no particular order. I'm not sure which order is best to put these in. Uh, so let's just start with the Bride of Christ. One of the eternal purposes of the Trinity is for Jesus to have a bride. This is the sole reason that marriage, the institution that we like to call it, of marriage exists. This uh, mysterious bond between man and wife is talked about in Ephesians by Paul. Uh, for this reason a man shall leave his mother and cling to his wife, right? Uh, leave his father and mother. So this, this eternal purpose we call the Bride of Christ. God has been pouring love into his son since eternity past. Uh, his son re reciprocates that love. 
But for reasons unknown to us, they decided that it would be desirable for the sun to pour his love into another place, not just into the Father. Because the Father is perfect as he is. The, the, the love has no transformative power that is given by Jesus to God. They cannot be more than they are. This love does not, does not have a transformative effect. The love of Christ as poured into mankind is all about transformation. The effect that it has on us when we fully comprehend it, or comprehend it in as full a way as, as possible, is transformation. The love of Jesus is supposed to be a transformative power in our lives. Now we know that there are lots of Christians in the world, lots of people who have, uh, at least with their lips, accepted Jesus as Savior and as Lord, and yet go on living as if nothing has ever changed. Not only are there many Christians, I would say all Christians have experiences. I'm not sure about this, but I would say all Christians, or nearly all Christians, have experienced a time either that they were not maturing as they should because they did not fully understand the love of Christ, or that they backslid a bit and recognized that that the old man was closer to them than they, than they had thought. They had hoped that he was gone, and yet he's hanging around. Uh, you know, I can, I, can, I can say that it seems that Paul was not this person. It seems to me that Paul did not have this um, tendency. But I don't know. I mean, you know, we don't know everything about Paul. We know that there are several years that pretty much, you know, we're blocked out of Paul's life. Many, many, many years, actually. Uh, whole blocks of, of, of years that we don't know what was going on with him exactly. But here we are. We have, we have this paradigm, the bride of Christ. Jesus, uh, for reasons known un only unto himself, wants to have a transformative effect on another being. He wants to invite somebody to the dance, and to do that, they have to be transformed. Because nothing that that the Godhead can make can achieve equality with God. Uh, they can't make something like that. Uh, and so, this is how uh, free freedom of choice comes into play that we are transformed by love, by choosing to accept Jesus, and in doing so, collectively as the body of Christ fellowships and meets by the power of Jesus through the connectivity of the Holy Spirit with the Trinity, we will eventually, as Paul talks about again in Ephesians, achieve the stature 
achieve a similar maturity level, whatever that means. I, I know that's hard to believe, but somehow we, were, we are going to, through the unity of the body, achieve one day uh, a stature that makes us um, qualified or, uh, for lack of a better word, compatible with, with Jesus himself. So this is the bridal paradigm. And where do you see the scripture? Well, you see it in almost every relationship between a man and a woman. You see it with Adam and Eve. You see that uh, Adam went to sleep for three days. Three day, uh, for uh, Actually, I don't know how long he was asleep. Anyway, Adam was put to sleep. And from his side, uh, Eve was taken out. Eve was taken out of his side. Um, okay. Now, the, the church is the bride of Christ. How did the church come about? Well, you could say that Jesus was put to sleep and went into the earth. And we were taken out of his side. And that blood and water poured from the side of Jesus. And through his death, the church was born. Uh, right? You see a correlation there. Um, you see, I mean, it's really everywhere. You see it, I, I think, very uh, much with the with um, Ruth and Boaz. Uh, with Ruth and Boaz, you see this relationship between a man and a woman foreshadowing uh, foreshadowing Jesus and his church. Uh, you see at the end of Revelation, again, you have a, a woman uh, and she is about to give birth Right? Um, you see it, of course, with Joseph and Mary, obviously. Um, all throughout Scripture. One of, one of the places that we see a very intimate glimpse uh, that, again, is a bit veiled is the Song of Solomon. Many people believe now that the Song of Solomon is... Uh, exactly that it's it's the it's the dialogue between the church uh, and Jesus it's 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 the lover it's it's the love relationship that they have um, being verbalized there in the Song of Solomon in a very beautiful poetic way uh, if that's not the explanation but then I have a, a hard time figuring out what Song of Solomon is about um, so one of God's eternal purposes is to find a bride for his son. Uh, we also saw that, uh, I believe, when uh, Abraham's servant was trying to find a, a wife for Isaac. Uh, and, and they found Rachel. No. Rebecca? Oh, I forget. Uh... Anyway, here again, yeah. Okay, so instead of instead of salvation, so far being one of the eternal purposes of God, we have the bride of Christ, and we can see exactly how salvation supports and plays into the paradigm of the bride of Jesus. That salvation is how. The bride of Jesus is cleansed and made worthy through the blood of Jesus. Okay. 
Uh, another paradigm is temple. From the beginning to the end, we can see that God desires a dwelling place. He desires a place for him to rest. He desires a dwelling place. Now we see this with the tabernacle, later you see it with the temple, and from the temple we see it with the church. Peter talks about that we are being built together, right? We are being built together as a temple for the Lord. Uh, when, it's, when it's said that, don't you know that your body is a temple? It's not talking about your individual body. I, I suppose there is, in some way, a way to look at your individual body as a temple. Uh, but I, I really think that collectively, our bodies are a temple. Right? Our The church... Right, we are the dwelling place of the Lord, and it's not the buildings. Okay, yes, Jesus desires, God desires a dwelling place, a place to rest. Right, but the people are the dwelling place, not buildings. Church buildings are not a physical location where God dwells. Okay, the people of God are his dwelling place. Now you also see this in uh, the final part. Uh, you see this in the final part of Revelation where uh, you've got the city coming down uh, that John sees. He sees the city coming down from heaven. Uh, and this city is the new dwelling place of God. And it says that there is no temple because... I have to look at this again. Uh, it does say that there is no sun because the glory of God uh, will, be, will be the light needed for it. Uh, so dwelling place. God, God desires a house, a home uh, in which he can rest. Um, and that's the second paradigm. God desires a dwelling place. And I'm going to leave it there for tonight. I'm really tired. Just drove home after a full day of work. And uh, I will come back next week with the further two paradigms and maybe some, some other notes on this one. Thanks a lot. God bless you guys. Bye-bye.